healthcare unfiltered. My name is Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, and policy. As you know, one of the um, items of this podcast is to go into history of medicine and advances. What got us to where we actually uh, got here? And I have heard a lot about uh, Dr. Ramaswamy Govindan, and he goes by Govindan, by the way. But I had not met him until recently. I had a trip to Washington University, St. Louis, and I met Govindan. And um, uh, I have to tell you, really, um, you immediately see a wealth of knowledge walking into the room. And with that, there's a lot of humility. Uh, the man is just humble, despite all of the amazing accomplishments that he had uh, really uh, done. But not only this, I could totally tell how much he cares about patients. I could totally tell that if I were to be sick with lung cancer, I would want him to be my doctor. But um, what I wanted to, to do is to invite him on the podcast and to talk a little bit about the history of lung cancer. What has happened in terms of advances in thoracic oncology that has led us to where we are today? And who's better than Govindan to really take us through that journey? Govindan is the Anheuser-Busch Endowed Chair in Medical Oncology in Washington University School of Medicine. He is a professor in the Department of Medicine there in the Division of Medical Oncology. And his interest really in genomics, cancer genomics with a focus on thoracic oncology. Uh, he has just, uh, I don't think I can uh, honestly list all of the accomplishments that he has, but I would say that um, he has been involved in cancer research and thoracic oncology research for a little bit more than two decades. Uh, he's an educator and a mentor, and he is charged on today's podcast in taking us through the history of how lung advances in lung cancers have changed over the past two decades and the academic culture and the research have changed. So I'm really delighted and excited to uh, host uh, Govindan on today's podcast. Uh, and I think you are going to really enjoy this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer colleagues or friends to the show. And also you can watch the show on uh, my YouTube channel. Without further ado, Govindan on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast, discussing all things lung cancer. Well, folks, I, I have to tell you that today I feel like a kid in a candy store because uh, I am uh, really honored to have an amazing physician, researcher, and a human being on today's podcast. And you know that somebody is very famous when is referred to by one word, which is Govindan. So the Govindan, uh, although he will introduce himself with his full name in a little bit, but uh, I'm really... Um, Pleased to have Govindan into this podcast. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot because we're going to talk about just all things lung cancer and go through the journey of how lung cancer care and therapy has changed over the past two decades. Govindan, welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, it's really an honor for me to have you. Um, 
and I'm humbled that you've taken an hour of your time to be with me. Um, so first of all, maybe a little bit of introduction about you and who you are, where you work, how you spend your day. But also, if as you introduce yourself, maybe take us what got you interested in thoracic oncology. I presume most of us who've done fellowship in oncology, we go into fellowship with not a whole lot of decision what subspecialty we are going to do, and then something happens. So take us through that. Good. First of all, thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I, I've been a big follower of, your, follower of yours, and uh, I watch these uh, the broadcasts with great interest. And it's an honor for me to be on this podcast, Charlie. Thank you so much. You know, my story is a very typical immigrant story. You know, I came to this country in 1991 with two suitcases and $18. And, uh, you know, I say that not to brag about myself, but it really shows what this country is all about. You know, I didn't know anybody. And uh, those were the days when uh, we got telephone interviews and I came here uh, you know, with $20 and I spent a couple of dollars in Los Angeles airport. So when, when I got off the plane in Chicago, I had $18 and some change. A friend of mine picked me up and uh, the hospital, Michael Reese, no longer there anymore now on Lakeshore Drive, gave us uh, a bunch of immigrants at the time in that, uh, in, in that um, class of ours. So the secretary there, I remember her name very well, Kim she was really kind, arranged for $1,000 loan. So there was a check of $1,000 waiting for me. So I overnight, I became very rich from $18 to $1,000. And then I, I cashed it and got the apartment deposit. And then they took $100 every month of our paycheck. So it was not a free gift, but it was still a loan and a very timely loan. And it really helped. And that's how I began my career in uh, Michael Ray's residency there. And then I came to Chicago, uh, I came to St. Louis for my fellowship. And uh, then I was on J-1 visa. So, which is a visa that, you know, you have to go back to the home country uh, or you have to serve in underserved areas. And um, after fellowship, I spent two years uh, at Cook County uh, Hospital in Chicago uh, in the ambulatory care clinic. I, I did only half a day of oncology. You know, the rest of the time I did internal medicine. That was a requirement for the visa. And two years later, I came back to WashU. I tried multiple places and nobody responded or people were busy with other things. And uh, I didn't get any job after my two years of that visa commitment. But fortunately, WashU took me back and... Uh, uh, and then I began my career ever since uh, I've been here and I've never left. I joined, uh, I came back to Washington in 1998 as a faculty. John DiPersio, my current boss, a um, uh, remarkable man. I was his second recruit and uh, either he saw some promise in me or he was desperate, one or the other. Um, but the good thing is, I like to think of former, but uh, you know, he gave me a nice opportunity and has been a great um, source of inspiration for me and guided me all throughout. You met him when you came here and uh, truly a remarkable physician scientist and a great leader. And uh, I've been here since then. And Govindan, what, what got you interested in thoracic oncology? Did you always want to do thoracic or did, were you shaped by someone else? How did that happen? You know, I, my mentor when I was in, uh, I was a fellow at Washington University was a remarkable man by name Dan Idy. 
and uh, some of the you know older generation physicians would recognize him. He was the deputy director of the National Cancer Institute, and he was recruited to Washington University midway through my fellowship uh, to head the you know newly formed cancer center here. Unfortunately, Dan uh, got into health problems, but Dan was described by many, including Paul Byrne and John Minner, as um, a man with encyclopedic memory and a remarkable physician and uh, a clinical investigator. And uh, poor Dan was uh, having some health issues, you know, very soon after he arrived here, but he was very kind to me and he was, it was quite inspirational. In fact, my very first paper on lung cancer was written with him in Small Cell Lung Cancer Review in one of the hematology oncology clinics of North America. Dan was in a way inspiring, was, a, was an inspirational figure at that time, even though he was not at the top of his game. And then after, I came back to WashU, Dan's health declined even more. So I, I, they asked me to pick up his practice and that's how lung cancer became my passion over time. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a mentoring from Dan early on and then the, and the vacancy left by his departure. Um, so I took, his, uh, I took over his patients and uh, took over his practice and it's all this, you know, that's how I began practicing lung cancer. But when you did your fellowship, it wasn't this, you, you were not sure yet whether you're going to do general oncology or any particular type. You, you did your fellowship, you went to do primary care and some oncology. At that time, you were still not certain if you're going to specialize or not? I knew one thing. I wanted to stay academic and I want in academic medicine, I wanted to do clinical research in, uh, in oncology. Lung cancer was certainly on the list, but wasn't finalized. Uh, I didn't really embark on it until an opportunity arose. So like many things in life, things just happen. It was not like I was dreaming of becoming a lung cancer doctor. There was a simple explanation. Nothing much was happening in lung cancer then. You know, there was, we had one chemotherapy regimen and lung cancer was not as um, prominent area of, uh, you know, people were flocking to breast cancer and they were, bone marrow transplant was a big thing then. And lymphoma was moving along. Herceptin was just coming along at the time. So those were very different days and lung cancer was not the in thing at that time. Um, but I was mainly concerned about getting a job as an immigrant and as somebody on visa that was a big challenge for us. So I was consumed by that. And I was going through some personal challenges at the time in my family. So we were anxious to get a job, not only for me and for my wife. And that consumed most of my you know, energy and passion. But then once I came back and I started practicing lung cancer, then it became truly a natural fit. And things started happening one after another at that time. And later on in the show, I'm going to ask a little bit about the education mentorship and, and, and how the culture of academia uh, has evolved over the past three decades. But let's start, let's try, I mean, I want to, first of all, the first half of the show, I want to take the listener through advances in lung cancer, really what has happened, because it's fascinating for somebody who is not a thoracic oncologist and seeing what's happening, it's really fascinating. So let's start with the first first five to six years when you when you were a thoracic oncologist. My first question is, did somebody tell you that you're crazy for doing thoracic oncology because it's like a dead field? And number two is, what? how was taking care of patients with thoracic uh, malignancies in the late 90s? It's 
Great, terrific questions. In fact, as a matter of fact, uh, my former chairman of medicine in Cook County said, he liked me very much. He said, are you going to do lung cancer? What is that for? He said, and I smiled and I, he, was, he, was, uh, he was not sure why I made the decision. You know, people were doing breast cancer at the time, as I said, lymphoma, transplantation, lung cancer of all things. And, um, and that I remember him making the remark. And he was an extremely wonderful guy and he wasn't saying it to put me down. And he was truly, that, that reflected the state of the field at the time, so to speak. And the, the interesting question is, so what, how was it like? You know, this, this may interest some of our younger audience members here. I'll tell you what happened, the state of, of care uh, or in, in 1998, 1999, when I was practicing lung cancer, stage four non-small cell lung cancer, the commonly used regimen at that time was platinum etoposide. And Paclitaxel was coming in, that was a new thing. And carboplatin, there was a big debate. Every conference you'll have the debate, cis versus carboplatin, you know, you would agonize over that. Stage three, chemo radiation was a new thing. You know, the so-called Dillman study where this was a famous study uh, read by, led by Bob Dillman for CLGB then, uh, I mean, then called CLGB, now called Alliance and where patients were randomized with stage three lung cancer to radiation or chemotherapy followed by radiation that showed for the first time some improvement in outcomes and survival, overall survival. And uh, then whole set of questions were asked, concurrent versus sequential. But those were the days when radiation alone would be fine, chemo followed by radiation was just coming in for stage three. And stage one to three, two lung cancer, even three lung cancers, if they can operate, they, there was no role for adjuvant therapy at that time. In small cell, we did chemo radiation like today with platinum etoposide. That's a sad state of affairs. We still do the same thing. And uh, with now immune checkpoint inhibitors and extensive stage small cell lung cancer, etoposide platinum was a standard thing. Topotecan was just coming in uh, in an experimental setting for a lab small cell. That was it. PET scan was just coming in. One or two places were using PET scans. It wasn't the routine thing. CT head was the standard. MRI of the brain wasn't the standard thing. Forget about sequencing, molecular analysis, none of that stuff. We just, uh, we just got cytology, non-small cell lung cancer, and off we went. It was, it was pretty interesting. I took the first internal medicine boards in 98. And the two take-home messages were always, we were warned that make sure you always answer no if they ask you about adjuvant therapy for lung cancer. Make sure you answer no if anything pertaining to screening for lung cancer. Right. And I think that also the third most common question, there were, I still remember, there were particular clinical parameters that if you see you definitely offer hospice and you do not offer chemotherapy. I think I remember maybe like hypercalcemia, performance status, weight loss. And if you have these, definitely right. hospice do not choose chemotherapy. There's like, you know, the cheat sheets yeah. of lung cancer. It's rather interesting. So, 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 and for the younger generation, like you're saying, they may not appreciate that because they probably never saw this. It's, it's funny you mentioned the carbo versus cis, because I promise you, that there were some careers in thoracic oncology literally made based on how many editorials were written differentiating cis versus carbo. JCO had always like something every three months. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, people may know this Cosmedes trial and uh, 
Dr. Cosmedes from Greece did the study comparing cis-cetopicide versus carbotopicide for small cell. And that's still, I think, in the best study looking at this head-to-head. Um, but there's always been a big debate. Every conference will have this discussion. There'll be passion advocates on both sides. And uh, also remember those are the days when the academia had not caught up on the chemo and the chemo related, you know, the support okay. revenue, et cetera. And the chair time was not the in thing at the time. And now then it became much more of a of, uh, major issue. You know, how much time some somebody occupies in a chemotherapy chair and, the differences were marginal between cisplatin and carboplatin. So I think that debate is settled now for most part. So what happened? And what was the rate limiting step? What happened that like something happened that started changing how we approach lung cancer? When did this happen? Take us through the history, if you, just whatever happened. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the great advantages is you've lived through some of that, right? So you really can, uh, I remember those distinct moments. I think the biggest thing happened was, in my opinion, the introduction of Jefetinac. You know, if you really think about the, if you go back in time, of course, you can pick different points and say this is the most important moment. For me, I think Jefetinac uh, was, uh, was, a, was a pivotal moment in lung cancer systemic therapy. I remember sitting in one of those rooms with a bunch of our colleagues and from lung cancer world, and we were discussing launching a trial with this drug, an oral drug, and uh, jefitinib, an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and at that time called RESA. And uh, I remember somebody making a comment, and uh, how, how do you expect a pill to help these patients? They're very sick. And um, in fact, at that time, mind you, we did not know anything about the EGFR mutation. So what, what, like what made them, what, why, like what was so special about IRISA that somebody said, let's study it in lung cancer? I think the EGFR um, was obviously a known target. EGFR, the head and neck and lung were thought to be important. While we didn't know that the activating mutations were driving these cancers, this drug targeted EGFR. So there was a lot of interest. And before that, you know, the EGFR, uh, EGFR itself has been recognized as an important uh, you know, play it in the in 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 cancer, at least in head and neck and lung cancer, and so at that time uh, there was some skepticism. I have to say that a pill could help these patients who are so sick. You know, we thought very much like some lay public. You know, how can a pill help such a devastating disease? And uh, then a number of studies was early results were quite striking, and there was some unique thing that came up that some patients responded very dramatically. And we were trying to figure out, is it related to hormonal status? And, uh, and I think Vince Miller and others from Memorial pointed out very nicely that the smoking status has something to do with that. So even though we have been seeing the non-smokers with lung cancer, we didn't really pay much attention to this entire new discipline or a subset of lung cancer, non-smokers with lung cancer. I think Vince, Vince, paper, Vince Miller's paper was probably the first one, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I really is, uh, identifying the non-smokers and the response to jefitinib. And, um, and then we really have, uh, um, have shown, that then later on, you know, we, many of us have had patients. I remember the second patient I took care of um, who was on the jefitinib trial 
she was in a compassionate program. By then we had began to see some activity enough to have compassionate programs. And so the requirements were less stringent. And so this patient was, had signed up for hospice care, came to check on, uh, is there any option available? And was very sick when I saw her. And uh, we put her on Jafitinib. A month later, I couldn't recognize her. And she had uh, become, you know, she's one of those Lazarus stories. And uh, she lived for three years. And then I, I, uh, a cardiac event that, uh, that really caused her death. Um, but the, those are the days when we began to see these dramatic responses. And, uh, and then the recognition of the EGFR mutation, um, you know, done at Boston MGH as well as um, Broad. And then also working with Harold Warmas, our group here, the building just behind me, where the sequencing was done, that led to recognition of the mutations, including the T790M uh, right here in St. Louis, in collaboration with the group in MSK and Harold Warmas and Vince Miller and Bill, William Powell, uh, that really opened up uh, you know, our, our recognition that the activating mutations played a major role uh, in this disease. And then that led to a lot in a, adjuvant studies, et cetera. I'll have to say, I mean, is it fair to say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is it fair to say that the initial signal that maybe there's something special about IRISA or gefitinib and so on was based on subset analyses where people just went back and said, right. let's see who's responding. And they found women, non-smokers, Asians, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know the famous story often repeated is when uh, a story of... Uh, uh, you know, the story ran in Boston Globe of Tom Lynch's patient, and then uh, later on read by um, the people at uh, MGH, and that led to the studies and um, uh, identification of the EGFR mutation, the simultaneous work at Broad, uh, and um, uh, with Bruce Johnson and Matthew Marston and Passiani. And uh, so all these, these are dramatic stories that came out in, I think, 2004, and uh, that really nailed this uh, cause for these traumatic responses. So here, you're right, empiric therapy, observation that some patients did well and uh, access to samples and using the appropriate technology at that time, even though we didn't have the current uh, next-gen sequencing so widely prevalent then, uh, really opened up that field. And um, uh, it, it's truly, truly is, in my opinion, a milestone in systemic therapy of lung cancer. And and the way the EGFR receptor was discovered, um, like you said, Vince Miller and your group and several other groups, there was a decision made, let's try to sequence lung cancer tissues. And yeah. You know, the, the, I think the first, uh, I think I would say the credit goes to the group in Boston, Tom Lynch, Matthew Marston, independently, these two groups, um, you know, recognized um, the responders, and then they went back and sequenced those tumors, and then Harold Warmas, who was then the, uh, then the cancer director and the president of Memorial, uh, working with Mark Chris, Vince Miller, sent the samples to St. Louis, and we sequenced some of those samples. I wasn't involved in that directly. And uh, our genome sequencing center was involved in that. And they let, they confirmed the mutations described by the Boston groups a few months earlier, and then identified the gatekeeper mutation. And, uh, and then not only we identified the mechanisms of response to EGFR TKI and TKIs at that time, but also the acquired uh, resistance as well, the T790M to Jafitinib. 
So then the gefitinib was discovered and the erlotinib. And then I, I recall vaguely gefitinib was withdrawn from the market or something. And then erlotinib stayed. And then take us through that phase where we started seeing the EGFR mutation was identified. And then somehow gefitinib lost favor, erlotinib came in, and then something happened also things took off after that. I would say, let's go through the period between 2000 and 2010. Yeah, you know, the I think the gefitinib, it's still an active drug. In fact, recently I had a patient who just came off, has been on gefitinib for over 14 years. And, um, you know, again, it's a single patient. Gefitinib is an, an active drug widely used in the rest of the world. It's only in the U.S. it is not used, uh, you know, it, it lost approval earlier on. And now um, the reason was that I think poorly designed study, there was a study called ICEL that didn't meet the primary endpoint. And it was not mutation specific trial. It was just all comers. And then later on we became, and the of trials were designed, I think, much more, uh, you know, learning from the experiences from the Jefferson trial. And there's a little bit of luck too. But then later on, trials focused on the mutant group. You know, the osimetinib studies were done um, focusing on the EGFR mutant patients. So we became much more sophisticated in our trial design with increasing knowledge. And um, I think the gefitinib loss in the approval, uh, this was one of the early drugs that got an accelerated approval uh, to the best of my knowledge and, uh, and then lost it uh, because the lack of... Uh, positive results in the confirmatory studies, uh, but we probably would be designing those studies differently today, you know, and if you had done those things, if it would have probably done okay. But then we started having so many of these EGFR inhibitors. Like, I, I honestly don't know how many we have out there. You you do, but are, I mean, uh, do we have a lot? I mean, isn't too uh, many? Not, but I mean, we have some, you know, the, of course you have the lot, Jefitinib, Erlotinib, and then afatinib, and afatinib was this mid-child, the middle child, and then osimetinib really is a mutant-specific one, it less toxicity, it's shown to be superior to other drugs, so that became, that has become the norm today, uh, is uh, standard used uh, now, and essentially, I think it comes down to, in most of the world, it comes to uh, osimetinib uh, if, if they can afford it, or if not, gefitinib or variations of that. And in some situations, afatinib is still used, especially those with compound mutations. So it's basically, I think it's come down to a couple of EGFR inhibitors around the world right now. EGFR-TK inhibitors, I should say. Yeah, it is, I mean, how, do you find that it's difficult choice in terms of selecting the EGFR inhibitors, or is it now, like in the, if I bring 10 thoracic oncologists and it's first line therapy, do they all say the same? Do they all select the same drug? Yes, I think they'll all say osimetinib. I think that debate is over in the US. In other parts of the world, cost is a problem. Even here is a cost is a problem. I'm sure you're gonna have many, you may have already had many podcasts on this. In many parts of the world, people have, there are no, there are no insurance system, no state payer, and uh, the gefitinib is much cheaper. And so people still use it. But in the US, I think, for, I cannot think of a good reason. The common mutations we're talking about, XR19 deletion and LH58R, I would say osimetinib is that go-to drug. 
And then how did you guys discover the ALK and the ALK mutation? And then you start developing drugs against the ALK. How did that happen? So the ALK was an interesting story. This came from the paper, uh, from a group in Japan, and uh, it was not done through a conventional next-gen sequence describing all these targets. And it was done through a very old-fashioned method. And uh, it so happened that the cell line they were working on had ALK rearrangement. And uh, the also serendipitously, uh, crisodinib was being developed as a MET inhibitor. And uh, in, uh, one, in a phase one trial, a patient who had an extraordinary response turned out to have ALK rearrangement. And then that led to resartinib studies. And then once you realize that the ALK is indeed prevalent in three to 4% of non-small cell lung cancer, the obviously the pharma got very interested and the ALKs much more selective inhibitors were developed. And then that led to now quite a few in that space, you know, you have crisartinib, alectinib, lolatinib, brigatinib. And so we really have a number of those drugs as well now in the ALK positive uh, group. So, so the, the ALK, basically the original study was not for the, was not, was developed as a MET inhibitor. Crisartinib was initially thought to be a MET inhibitor. And I think just happened to have a patient with a nice response, had to have um, ALK, uh, ALK rearrangement. And uh, that's the story I hear. And I, I think I'm, I've heard this many times. So, uh, yeah. And then yeah. how, do you, how do you select with, we talked about the EGFR. It's, it seems like at least, I would say 90% of the thoracic oncology community is agreeable. How about the ALK inhibition um, in terms of first line? I think the what is clear now is the alectinib and lolatinib have greater penetration in the brain and uh, they are superior drugs compared to crisartinib. So I think for most, uh, for all practical purposes today, I think most people use, at least I use alectinib uh, and some I think use lolatinib in the frontline setting. So it's been narrowed down to those drugs, especially if they can afford it. Uh, if for some reason people cannot handle alectinib or lolatinib, crisartinib, I guess is an option or brigatinib. Um, but in, I think in most most of us, outside of a clinical trial, most of us use alectinib, I think, for out positive lung cancer in the frontline setting. And if somebody has EGFR, they cannot have ALK, right? They're completely mutually excluded. Typically. Typically. And occasionally you've seen patients. In fact, right now I have a patient who has EGFR mutation upon progression found to have ALK rearrangement and responding nicely to nicely to electinib. And um, so it does happen, but they are very rare, not very common. So uh, is it fair to say that the decade 2000 to 2010 was the decade of ALK inhibition and EGFR inhibition? I think it's, yeah, I think it's very fair to say that. Those, those are the time, the stories, the dominating um, reports or papers coming out focused on uh, EGFR or ALK at that time in lung cancer, especially in systemic therapy. Around the same time, a few other things happened too. Right? We established the adjuvant therapy as a standard of care. A series of studies established that there was a modest but clear improvement in overall survival with the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. That is a big deal in my view because you began to cure more patients you know, not just controlling the cancers as in metastatic disease in stage one to three, we were curing more patients, five to 10% uh, with the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. And also I think around the same time, we, I think the concurrent chemo radiation 
uh, was seen to be the standard of care in stage three lung cancer. So I think that also happened around the same time. So several things were going on at the time. And um, so all, all of them led to an improvement in overall survival in my view. And then maybe the adjuvant studies for EGFR mutant tumors or ALK positive tumors, were they starting to be developed or not yet? Right. You really know your timeline extremely well. You've done your homework beautifully. Uh, here is the thing that the adjuvant trials are beginning to be thought of. You know, it's a natural outgrowth, if you can imagine. You know, when you see chemotherapy improves overall survival, you want to ask a question, could the adjuvant, you know, EGFR inhibitors uh, may be of help. We did have a bit of a bad news on that front. You know, we, we designed a study where patients got adjuvant uh, gefitinib after chemoradiation. And uh, it turned out that the adjuvant chemoradiation worsened the outcomes compared to those who did not get adjuvant gefitinib following chemoradiation in stage three lung cancer. This was a SWOG study. And um, uh, without going into the details of that, um, but we continued our efforts to optimize, uh, you know, EGFR DK inhibitors in the adjuvant space. And we began this effort uh, called Alchemist in the, in the U.S. Uh, National Cancer um, Supported um, Trial Network sites, and uh, where we screened a large number of patients. Right now, we've screened over 7,000 patients, uh, early stage lung cancer. They have EGFR mutation. Then they got, uh, you know, uh, adjuvant alodinib or observation. If they had uh, ALK rearrangement, then they got uh, adjuvant crosodinib uh, or observation. And then the others went on to get immunotherapy following chemotherapy, that's nivolumab in this case. And we also are using all those samples to do comprehensive genomic analysis. So those studies were designed or conceived around the late 2000, end of 2009, 10, and then uh, they became more operationalized a couple of years later. So when, when did this uh, fiasco over PD-1 and PDL one then start? When did we, uh, I mean, when did this take off and start? Yeah, before that, one other thing happened, Charlie, if you can go back and yeah. uh, ask this. And around 2008, um, I would say that, I mean, as you know, the human genome sequencing was completed um, around the waning days of Bill Clinton's presidency. It was announced in the White House with Tony Blair and uh, Bill Clinton about the successful completion of the Human Genome Project, both by the private as well as by the public enterprise. And then uh, four or five years later, we published uh, the very first comprehensive whole genome sequencing in a cancer patient using acute myeloid leukemia. Tim Lay and Rick Wilson from Washington University published this comprehensive analysis. You know, it was only 13 years ago, but think about this. One whole genome sequencing got a nature paper. Just one whole genome sequencing. That was a there was a big effort at that time, and it was thought to be a very difficult thing to do. Cost-wise, when I give talks, I highlight this. The Human Genome Project uh, was done in four centers, you know, MIT and Broad, Washington University, um, Baylor and Houston, and, uh, and uh, at Sanger Institute in the UK and other institutions. But these are the four major institutions that led the bulk of the work. It took 10 plus years, the public enterprise, and $3 billion BS and BOI. 
And when we did the AML sequencing, whole genome sequencing, it took us uh, about a year and a half and $1.5 million to complete this. So the cost has come down. I always point out that uh, this was two genomes, not one, because at that time, this patient's uh, leukemia was also sequenced along with the skin sample as well. So, so there's two human genomes. So the cost was really like $700,000 per genome. And that is a far cry from $3 billion, uh, you know, literally eight, nine years ago, earlier. And so then around the same time, the Cancer Genome Atlas project was launched. And uh, the goal was to sequence over 10,000 tumor samples from over 33 tumor types, including lung cancer, about 1,000 of them. And um, Steve Balin from Hopkins, Matthew Myerson from MIT, and uh, I led the project. And uh, we sequenced at the end of the day about 1,000 lung cancer tumor samples and published uh, four papers, 2012 in Nature. First, we defined the landscape in squamous cell. Then we did this in adenocarcinoma in 2014. And those are the two first comprehensive papers uh, outlining the genomic alterations using whole exome and whole transcriptome. And, um, and then, uh, we, then uh, we updated those things later on in Nature Genetics in 2016 and more recently, early this year in uh, cancer cell reports. And um, so that really opened up, uh, you know, really opened up additional targets and gave us some idea of what the genome sequencing uh, taught us about the lung cancer. Uh, and around the same time, the immunotherapy was coming in. And um, so the 2010 to 2020, you know, helped us clarify more about the genomic alterations in cancer. And we spent a lot of time defining that. What was discovering the PD1 and PDL1s as potential targets something that's that basically came out of the genome or no? This was no, it was unrelated to that. And I think uh, the the main thing was the Bristol BMS worked with Metarax and they had this PD1 inhibitor that became later on known as nivolumab. And uh, there was a lot of interest. And uh, we had reported in 2012 that the smoker lung adenocarcinoma had 10 times more mutations than the non-smoker lung adenocarcinoma. But even before that, it was widely anticipated that melanoma and lung cancer may respond well to immunotherapy. And those studies were launched. Of course, melanoma was a few years earlier than us. And, uh, and then the lung cancer early results looked compelling. Again, phase two data, phase one, phase two, fantastic results on some patients, 15 to 20%. So one thing led to another. Then Merck came along with pembrolizumab and nice studies were done. And then the PDL1 uh, inhibition was thought to be better and safer. And then we have those drugs like tesalizumab, duralumab that came along. Uh, and so all these studies with... Um, Global participation uh, redefined the field, and uh, and and uh, tempted by the EGFR story, people were trying to really find a biomarker that could really nail down who are those patients who respond very well to immunotherapy. And I would say that work is still work in progress. You know, we have not really uh, we've got some answers, but we have really not uh, solved the problem. So, scientifically, just a couple of questions that came to mind. Scientifically, do you feel that there's a that may be a stupid question, but hey, it's okay. But I know stupid question. Scientifically, do you feel there's a difference if you inhibit the PDL1 versus the PD1? Like, do you feel 
Is there any difference? Like, I don't know. There, there was a thought, and I'm no immunologist either. So, uh, you know, there was a thought at that time that the PDL1 inhibition may be safer rather than the PD1 inhibition. And, uh, but it, I don't see a big difference between PDL1 and PD1 inhibition, at least we even compared head to head. But I think, uh, you know, when we see the side effect profile, response efficacy, I don't really see a big difference. And, uh, uh, you know, the standard of care has evolved over time. And how, how do that, how does, how do these interact with the EGFR and the ALK? In other words, if you have EGFR mutation, are you expected to have low PD-1, PD, like, is there any or completely irrelevant? You can find it all. Yeah. You know, Charlie, this is a kind of a modern day version of uh, cisplatin versus carboplatin debate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how do you use PD-1, PD-L1, PD-L, PD-1 versus PD-L1, PD-L1 as a biomarker. I'll tell you, maybe my views are biased. The way I interpret the data, uh, here are the following comments I would make. Um, one, you know, the PDL1, high level of PDL1 expression in the tumor cells identify a group of patients who would respond well to single agent, uh, you know, checkpoint blockade. And the best data we have is from the pembrolizumab data. And, um, you know, the studies, the Keynote uh, 24 and 42 studies have taught us that. And I think high level of expression, PDL1, 50% or more, identifies a subgroup of patients who respond well to single agent immunotherapy. Uh, I say when I say immunotherapy, I mean uh, PD1, PDL1 directed inhibitors, particularly pembrolizumab. And I, I use in my practice, if you have a high level of PDL1 in the tumor cells, 50% or more, I would consider pembrolizumab single agent for those patients, especially if they don't have large bulky volume of disease. And if they have large bulky volume of disease, then you want some chemotherapy to go along with pembrolizumab in order to have a, you know, earlier cytoreduction because uh, the action of pembrolizumab takes a little while. On the other hand, uh, in a large group of patients, one to 49%, I think these patients are better off in my view by using the triplet therapy in the non-small cell lung cancer and in the space. If a small cell, we don't really use PDL one expression. And, uh, and one of the curious things about small cell lung cancer, if you have time, we can talk about that later, is that um, here is a tumor that is um, seen almost exclusively in smokers high mutation burden, still the response to immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, is quite an impressive, modest. And uh, in fact, nivolumab did not even meet the primary endpoint against topotecan and in small cell lung cancer in the relapse setting. Uh, so we still have to understand the reasons behind that. But putting that aside, the PDL one expression helps us identify a group of patients who would benefit from single agent checkpoint inhibitor in my view. That's where I use it the most. So we've gone through from mid-90s until 2020 uh, in terms of the evolution from chemotherapy, target therapy, sequencing, all of these things. Where are you, where, where's the thoracic oncology field heading over the next 10 years? If, if you're designing project plan, what do you want to see in the next decade um, in terms of research? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Charlie. So and, you know, we were in the space where we, 10 years ago, we were unable to sequence, you know, the tumors in an expeditious fashion, and it took us a long time to do it. 
Um, now we can do it faster, we can do it better. We can even go down at a single cell. Now, as you may have seen, many of those single cell sequencing papers where we can look at a few thousand cells, identify this great heterogeneity in the tumor samples uh, by doing the single cell sequencing. Now we can really do proteomics. Until recently, we could only do a few proteins. Now, in fact, we published two papers not long ago, one in cell in 2020 and one recently, again in cell. The first one was on uh, adenocarcinoma. The latest one is on squamous cell cancer, part of the NCI CPTAC effort, and um, where we sequenced over 100 tumors comprehensively, over 10,000 proteins and about 40,000 uh, post-translational events in each of them. So we can really find a lot of these uh, you know, alterations that are not picked up at the genomic level. SHIP2, for example, is not the protein we can see uh, the phosphorylation of this uh, SHIP2 protein at a very critical site, but we cannot, we don't find gene mutations in this. So the, what happens at the protein level and the post-translational modification may be quite important. And the newer generation will, uh, studies will help us identify the proteogenomic alterations and we can interpret that beyond the DNA sequencing. Also, I think uh, we will be looking at the immune landscape much more closely and better using the single cell sequencing. And we can identify the subpopulations of macrophages, immune cells, and with great clarity. And I think in the next 10 years, uh, we will be able to identify those things. The challenge is to get good quality samples, asking key clinical questions. You know, the days of describing what we find in 100 adenocarcinomas, 200 squamous cell carcinomas, those days are over. They are not interesting questions anymore. But we have to really tie that to therapeutic questions. Why do these patients, you have two sets of patients, one getting a PDL1 inhibitor responding very well, the other one getting the same inhibitor responding poorly. What is defining the genomic and uh, immune landscape? And using these technologies, we'll be able to get an answer better and maybe we'll be able to validate them and go after them therapeutically later on. So there are two camps out there. One camp says that histology matters in cancer, but there's a growing camp of investigators. Some of them are senior investigators, other are junior and more motivated that says, you know what? Histology does not matter. If you have adenocarcinoma of the lung that is driven by this oncogene, and it's the same oncogene that's driving the breast cancer in, in the other person. I don't really care of the where the cancer started from or the histology. Which camp are you in? Do you think we're jumping ahead of ourselves by saying histology does not matter? You know, unlike religion and politics, it's better to have an open mind you know, <laughs> in, in science, right? So you go where the evidence is. And, um, you know, for example, uh, I, I think... It is probably a wrong uh, focus in my view, and I could be wrong. So obviously, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it. But, but what we have come to appreciate is a great example is KRAS, G12C, right? So we have a great drug. For, we, have, we have now good drugs for it. I won't say great drugs. We have good drugs for it. And we see some activity and uh, very encouraging, something that we didn't think we could target four years ago, five years ago, it's a real tribute to medicinal chemistry more than biology or anything. And you and I, I have been involved in the KRAS G12C inhibitor development with Sotorasev, and we've seen dramatic responses 
in the setting of lung cancer, lung adenocarcinoma, not so much in colon cancer, adenocarcinoma of the colon. So I don't think we have, we have reached the point where we can have KRAS clinics, EGFR clinics. People talked about that, you know, when you and I were doing fellowship time, say eventually that's how we would all be practicing cancer a little later than that fellowship times. But I think what we are missing is the context matters. You know, the KRAS G12C mutation lung cancer occurs with concurrent alterations of certain you know, types. And whereas the same in uh, colorectal cancer may be influenced by other alterations. You know, we have learned one thing that the cancers don't start overnight, right? They have taken, a, they have a long gestational time. And uh, now with all the wonderful technologies we have, we can identify the founder clones. We have identified the key mutations that initiated the process and the concurrent alterations at the clonal, uh, the subclonal level that have evolved over time. And they, along with the tissue of origin, resident uh, you know, macrophages or the immune system, they sculpt the tumor as they evolve and they have a certain say in the matter. And that's why I don't think we are ready to ditch the histology or the, even the site of origin at the moment. We may reach a point 10, 15 years from now or earlier uh, with a better set of analysis, better artificial intelligent tools, putting the data coming out of this proteogenomic analysis and then may give a certain predictive approach to certain drugs and targets, then the histology may not matter so much. But we are not there yet. But I think eventually we may get there, but we are not there yet. I know I've taken a lot of time, but it's just so much fun to talk to you. And I'm sure you have a lot of things to talk about, but that, to, to, to jump to. But I want to I take the, the last few minutes, um, just learn from you. You've been doing this for since fellowship, training, and faculty close to two plus decades. Um, how have you seen, one, the academic culture have changed um, over the past two plus decades? And... Education and mentoring, it's an important part of every academic physician. And we have to admit it has changed a little bit because uh, me and you, before we went on the show, we were talking about, you know, I mean, I honestly used to, re to read the entire paper. I actually used to enjoy reading the paper, although I wasn't actually interested in the field, but I loved reading the discussion and I was learning how to write papers. But now you could barely read a tweet and you make a decision based on a tweet or an abstract or a title. So as an educator, as a mentor, as an academic, take me through the change in academic culture. And have you morphed the way you teach and train and mentor junior faculty? No, Achari, I think you are right about this. Now, there, now it's challenging. It's very hard now because the field is tough. There are more, there's more competition those were the days when eight, 10 of us would gather every year at Martha's Vineyard and decide the lung cancer program for two or three, you know, for design two or three major trials. And those days are gone now. And in, uh, justifiably, in my opinion, it's more democratized. So, but I think the key principles are the same. You know, you have to put your head down, work harder, come up with a single good question, follow with good clinical trials, work with your colleagues, and, uh, and then take one step forward. Um, it's a long slot. You know, you cannot get answers quickly. There are lots of challenges. Uh, you know, you have to write 10 proposals to get one approved. You should not lose your heart. It's easy to say that, 
currently a couple of my grants are being reviewed today. So I've been checking the scores uh, as that happens. So, you know, you, you have to really, yeah, when you don't get a good score, I mean, it gets uh, table. Yeah, it does hurt your feelings. You're, you're checking your grant score. I'm checking the Red Sox score. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> So, but I think you have to enjoy what you do. You know, what what the job you and I do is a privileged one. And we take care of patients who go through really indescribable uh, suffering. And at the same time, you got to enjoy and enjoy, have a balanced life. And uh, that's the only way to longevity in your career. You cannot be all about, it cannot all be about work or about you. And it's just a long-term process. Oh, that was really great, uh, Govindan. Any Last thoughts. I mean, I have so many questions I would love to ask you. I just want to be very respectful of your time, but I, I want to make sure that we cover everything pertaining to the journey of lung cancer. I think the listeners have an appreciation of what you've gone through in terms of research and therapeutics. It's hard to cover everything with lung cancer. We did not, for example, focus on the adjuvant setting and on the early stage. We did not talk about advances in surgical techniques, radiotherapy techniques, because we're both our medical oncologists. Um, but anything else you feel that folks who are listening, they really ought to know and take to heart? No, I, first of all, this is, uh, first of all, I want to commend you and congratulate you on the great work you're doing. And I think really it's very helpful, quite inspirational for me to listen to your podcast and uh, listen to the history of medicine in many ways. And I think people have to take time to go back and look at the histories to have an appreciation of what you have. You know, when you think about, uh, clicking, we complain about EPIC and all the electronic health records. I think that's certainly understandable. Uh, but then we also forget the time when uh, we had to go down to the film library, request a person, pull the hard films, put them side by side, and suddenly one important sheet is missing because somebody had walked away with that. So compared to that, now we can sit there, you can be a continent away and you can look at the films and call a patient from there. So the technology has enabled us to do a lot more things. At the same time, it is occupying more and more of our time. So we got to really have a handle on that, but I appreciate where we have come. You know, this conversation has energized me, to be honest with you, and looking back and see where we have been 15, 20 years ago, how far we have come. We still have a long way to go. So we got to be careful about doubting our own progress is too much. I still, we still lose patients. A lot of our patients are dying earlier and uh, than they should. We don't give them a full uh, high quality of life, a great quality of life. We still have a lot of work to do. So we got to be a little bit uh, more humble about the progress, um, you know, the need for more progress and appreciate, um, you know, how far we've come at the same time, work very hard. Well, I, I very much appreciate it. I think sometimes the one thing that um, looking at the history that triggers in me uh, individually as a, as a person, as a human being, is the patience that we lost before these advances were there. Right. You know, I mean, I think there, there is no question. I mean, I know for sure I've lost some relatives and some, some, some patients that they probably had the EGFR mutation, right? And, and you just look back, it is what it is. It's all about timing. Right. There's nothing really you could do about this, but uh, that's why we need to have an open mind. And, and I would say, you know, and maybe I'm a little bit more pragmatic than the hardcore academic physicians, but, but I do feel we, we have made a lot of advances 
in oncology, in medicine, because we did not necessarily always stick to the fact that you must do randomized control trials. Like sometimes you can actually do a subset analysis, you find something and you follow that. You, you can think a little bit differently. If we always stuck to the gold standard, we probably still be uh, where we were, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, but we have to have rigorous studies, but the, the nature of studies vary quite a bit depending on the situation. But I think, uh, you know, the subset analysis are very useful, but they need to be prospectively validated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they are hypothesis generating and uh, anecdotal cases are useful to list at a point as long as it's followed up scientifically and validated. So I think you have to keep those old principles still in mind. Well, we need to have you back though. We need to have yeah, you I'll be honored to, Chadi. I'll be honored to. 10 years from now, we'll do it again. Oh, no, not 10 years. Come on. Uh, no, but this was really wonderful. I, uh, I look forward to sharing this with a lot of folks and a lot of uh, I think a lot of lung cancer uh, physicians would love to hear this and, and just hear your views. Be, they, there, are, there are physicians that have, right now taking care of patients that would laugh at us if we talk carbo versus this, like what? Right. Somebody <laughs> actually did JCO paper about this? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Do you remember the famous, uh, everybody was looking forward to John Schiller's presentation on the ECOX. Oh. Comparing he got 14, uh, 1494. It's, you know. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the four different regiments, they were all hugging each other. Yeah. What Larry Einhorn would say, failed the laser pointer test because you cannot put the laser pointer between the curves. We have come a long way since then. We still have a long way to go. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you very soon, hopefully in person. Thank you, Jadi. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate you tuning into the show. I would appreciate if you can subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague, and briefly write a review. This will really allow other uh, interested parties to find this podcast and to listen to this podcast. Check out my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on healthcare unfiltered uh, channel. Let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or you can uh, message me through the website or on Chadi Nabhan, OO at outlook.com. You know, I wanna leave you with a saying that was stated by Rene Lerici, who is, who was, um, uh, a surgeon, a French surgeon, I believe. And he goes through a saying that just describes how us as physicians, sometimes we carry with us a cemetery of the patients that we have lost over the years. And this should keep us humble. It just keep, it should remind us that we are all going to be patients, either we're all either currently patients or we have been patients or we are going to be patients. So let's just remember the people that we lost and what we can do to advance cancer care. Rene Lerici said, every surgeon, and I will say probably every physician, but he said, every physician carries within himself a small cemetery where from time to time he goes to pray 
a place of bitterness and regret, where he must look for an explanation for his failures. Until next time, take care.